a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the, the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 74 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm your host, Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities. This podcast, as always, is dedicated to the sportscasting industry and talking with people involved in sportscasting at all levels from all around the country. You may have noticed that the last few episodes have featured guests from the Twin Cities. Well, since I recently moved here, that's not only because the area has fantastic broadcasters, but frankly is for selfish reasons because it's a great way to make connections with local influencers in the business. And while there will be more conversations with Twin Cities broadcasters in the future, I promise, I don't want it to be exclusively Twin Cities people for... Uh, months at a time. So we're going to take a break from that for this episode to talk with the Senior Vice President for ESPN who leads both the audio and talent departments, Trog Keller. I was really fortunate to meet Trog at the Conclave Radio Conference over the summer and he's generously agreed to a half-hour interview for the podcast. So without wasting any of that time, without further ado, Trog Keller, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, Logan. Glad to glad to be here with a with a fellow audio lover. <laughs> so, I, I do a lot of research on all of the guests that come on here, and I find it interesting that you went to Boston College with a degree in English and psychology, but ended up in in media. How did that happen? Oh man, let me let me let me try to remember back that far. <laughs> um. I think it's simple. I'll tell you what, I, I, I delivered newspapers while I was at Boston College, and I said, you know, I kind of like this. I like the media business. I want to get in the media business. That was the extent of, my, uh, of my, my strategic direction. And I did a good job for the New York Times while I was at Boston College, so they wound up hiring me uh, right, out of, right out of school. And I do think... I do think an English major is. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in a strong liberal arts education. I think if you 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 learn you know how to how to fundamentally write and speak and 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 communicate, um, those are those are those are important ingredients. So call it an English major, call it a communications major, whatever whatever you'd like. But I think if you you're if you get that if you get that 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 strong that strong under underpinning. In terms of education, um, I don't think it quite matters what you major in. I thought it was interesting as far as your career has unwound, where you've gotten into leadership and you've directed, you know, large staffs of people. That the psychology major part of that came into play. How does having that background help you? Well, I think I think you know. Listen, we're in a we're in a people business, right? And 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 I think anything that helps you understand what motivates people, what makes people want to excel, what what makes them want to win, what is important to them. I think I, I think those are all those are all key ingredients in putting together a team and and also in 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 leading a team. 
So let's go to the... In what I've found, you kind of got your big break into leadership in a network situation with ABC in 1994, where you were the manager of Eastern Sales. How did you get into media sales before that point to where you could grow to eventually take that position? Sure. So so I graduated from college all the way back in 1982. And um, upon graduation, I went home and 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 and, and began cat my continued my career in caddying. Um, did not have a job when I graduated, and um, but I had, as I said, I had I had actually um, worked for and and, and uh, worked for the New York Times and the and the Boston Globe up at Boston College, making sure you know delivery of newspapers got done and and, and all that stuff, and had the it helped share, shared in the the concession up there. And um, it turned out that the Times was was looking for a uh, someone to go out in uh, the summer of 1982, and uh, and and basically work with college and schools on the West Coast in setting up uh, setting up distribution. You had to go basically up and down the corridors of USC, UCLA, Pepperdine, Stanford, Berkeley, all the all the all the schools out there get teachers to, to require it in the classroom, like political science teachers and economics teachers, then hire somebody on campus to deliver the papers. So you, you basically became a salesman to college professors about using the New York Times in the classroom. That's how I got my start in sales. I went up and down the, uh, the, the West Coast. I had never, when they, when they offered me the job, I had never been west of Ohio. So um, I, I got on a plane. I think I, I had a grand total of about 500 bucks in my pocket. And, um, and, and landed in LA and a guy from the New York times picked me up and I, I, I was started, I started work the next day and, um, was out there for a few years and, um, it grew, it gradually grew from college and school sales to what was called single copy sales and distribution, where you would try to sell the, you would sell the, basically the distribution of the paper through, uh, chain stores and retailers and things like that. So I cut my teeth in originally in, in sales. So how did you learn to be able to recognize great content without ever being on the air, so to speak? <laughs> well, you know, as a sales guy, so, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit because you're probably, you're, you're probably wondering, well, how'd you get from there to radio? And I'm going to go all the way back to uh, I, I was I was listening to radio as as soon as I could eight seven eight nine ten years old I'd be listening to WCBS AM in New York City I was a news junkie I was listening to WNBC um, they had sports night they had a, a sports call in show with Marv Albert I think I I literally put blister in my my finger dialing those metal rotary phones trying to call into the show <laughs> by the way I never I never got in. Um, but anyway, as a so as a and I, and I think to kind of get you the answer up to that, I've got to back up a little bit. Um, so I was working at the Times, and I really did love radio. I loved I, I I liked the media business. I remember when I was at Boston College and I was a senior, starting to think about what I wanted to do. And you know, I interviewed at Procter and Gamble and American Hospital Supply, and you know, it, it, none of that stuff looked looked too exciting to me. And 
but the media, the media business, there is, there's something about it, right? I just said, that's a, that'd be a business to get into. And, and my break was getting that job, obviously, at the New York Times. But as I, as I did that out on the West Coast, and I was in my car an incredible amount of time, as people are in, in Southern California, I was listening to what I've always listened to, radio, right? I would listen to Loman and Barkley. I listened to Paul Hart. That's when I discovered Paul Harvey. Little did I know, years later, I'd be working with Paul Harvey. Um, but I was always very, very much in tune with, with, with content um, because it was, you know, the, the Monday Night Football was, was on East Coast time, so it was drive time on the West Coast. I listened to Jack Buck and Hank Stram every Monday night, do Monday Night Football. So I was really, and that, that by the way, ultimately led to my, my ultimately getting to CBS radio networks. But, um, but I was always very much in tune with the content and, again, loved radio. So while I was out there, I, I made a connection. While I was in Los Angeles working for the Times, I made a connection with someone back in New York at CBS saying, hey, I love, I love radio. I'd love to get into radio. And so they put me in touch with the, with the executives at CBS Radio in Los Angeles. And basically they told me, well, if you want to get into radio, you've got to go, you've got to go to, uh, you've got to go back to graduate school in, and get a master's and then work in, 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 a, in a really small market. And I'm saying to myself, well, wait a minute, I'm working for the New York Times in Los Angeles. What, 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 what kind of incredible knowledge do you have to have to be able to kind of sell spots, right? You have audience, you've got content, you marry those together, you got a proposition for an advertiser. I'm not sure I need to go spend two more years of college to figure that out. And um, anyway, so I, I, I ignored that advice. And, um, and I wound up getting transferred back by the New York Times to the New York area, um, more on the, on, the, on the business side of the newspaper. And one day I told the vice president of circulation, you know, you guys own WQXR in New York, the rate classical music station. I, you know, I'd really like, I see there's an opening. I'd really like a chance to, to kind of move over onto the radio side. And he wound up telling me, what are you, you what are you, crazy? Why don't you sell advertising sales at the paper? And I said, I really, I love, I love radio. Anyway, um, and ironically, the guy that did that, Russ Lewis, went on to become the president of the New York Times company. Um, and uh, great, great guy, by the way. But anyway, he let me, he, he paved the way. I'd done a good job for him. And, um, and I got that job at start of retail sales at, at WQXR, a classical music station, of which I knew nothing about, by the way, classical music. Um, but it got me, it got my start of, of, of knocking on doors. Uh, I will say upscale doors because it was classical music, but knocking on retail doors and restaurants in New York City and, um, and, and trying to help these, these, these small business people with their businesses by, by advertising on the station. And so that's how I, that's how I got my start in radio. Um, and again, though, always a keen interest on the content. I used to go, even at QXR, I used to go into the studio um, with, the, with the announcer while they're doing their shows and, you know, and make sure they were reading the spots I had written absolutely perfectly um, and, and things like that. But again, always, I was always very much in tune with, with content. So when the opportunity ultimately came, um, for me to for for me to kind of take on more than more than just the sales piece of it, I I I, I felt like I had been involved in the content business 
all my life. Um, you know, from QXR, I knew I didn't know a lot about classical music and I love sports. Going back to that Jack Buck and Hank Stram example I gave, um, CBS Radio Network was where sports was happening on a national basis. I wound up getting a job over there and, um, and, and doing, a, doing a good job. My dad always told me, look, you know, you want to do well, just do the job you have at hand and do it really well and, and, and stuff happens for you. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of what happened for me at CBS. I eventually became East Coast sales manager. And, um, but all the while I was doing that, CBS, our content was over on West 57th Street and our, our offices were at Black Rock on 52nd. And I used to walk over at least a couple times a week and just sit in while the newscasters did that CBS News on the Hour. Because I, I wanted to just be a part of the content. I felt it helped me as a salesperson. That, and then I used to bring clients in to the studios to kind of either whether it's a studio or if we were doing Sunday night, Monday night football, I'd bring them up to the booth. I was always trying to connect the advertisers with the content because I felt that that was one of the one of the best ways to sell. That's so interesting. I know I've been long winded here. That, that's OK. It's a podcast. You can talk as long as you want. But uh, that's right. That's a podcast. <laughs> I've uh, my career has almost entirely been a dual role of sales and on the air. So I have a little bit of a different perspective on this than a lot of uh, up-and-coming broadcasters, so to speak. But in your eyes, as a talent evaluator and someone who helps to to hire people at the highest level, how important is having, if not a knowledge of sales, at least the ability to deal with a sales staff and be on the same team instead of in having an adversarial relationship. Oh, I think it's I think it's essential. I think it's essential now more than ever. I, I, I think the, the media business is as tough as it has ever been, right? And uh, and if you're running an organization, to say that we are all in it together is an understatement, right? Um, and I think you 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 know, I think if you don't have talent that um, that understand that. Look, there there are parameters, right? I mean, I, there, that I understand, and but you got to have talent that understands that sales is is an essential part of how we are all successful, how we how we get paid, how we eat, right? I mean, that's 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 it. And I want to fast forward a little bit because we are, I don't want to say crunched on time, but we don't have as long as we usually go on this show. So we'll fast forward to when you started at ESPN in 2006. And that really kind of coincided with when social media was blowing up and the internet was becoming what it is now. Has there ever been both a more challenging and more exciting time to be a part of media at, at ESPN? than that time no i think it's been um it, it, it's been it's 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 been an absolutely fascinating time and it, you know it, it allowed us to say you know back in 2006 2005 whenever it was hey we're not in the radio business we're in the audio business right is we 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 early on said we're going to be we're in the business of creating content and my gosh, look how great it is to be in this space now because there's so many different new ways people can get audio. You know, it's streaming or it's satellite 
you know, or it's, you know, now it's podcasts. So there's just been this explosion of, 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 of new avenues for people to kind of consume audio content in this last decade or so that has really made it exciting to be, to be in the business. So I'm sitting here at my desk in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studios, and I do have an actual terrestrial radio. It's not plugged in, and it hasn't been turned on. And uh, maybe since I moved to the Twin Cities, I'm not entirely certain. What is the future of terrestrial radio, and do you see a point where down the line where some sort of on-demand or streaming eventually replaces uh, the traditional radio as we know it? You know, I don't know. I think it's like everything else. I don't know that the 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 underlying um, the underlying vehicle goes away, right? I think other things come and 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 take pieces of it. But I don't know. I don't know that terrestrial radio will ever go away. It's free, by the way. Still, over ninety three percent of the United States is listening on a weekly basis. Those are those those are big numbers. But I will tell you that if you, you know, you don't, it's pretty easy to get the data. Um, the, the, the demographics on those listening on demand or what the, really that's what podcasting is. It's audio on demand. That is, uh, that continues to rise. I just saw, you know, our numbers for August, just saw a report that we were up again, uh, 17%. And, um, and it, 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 it's real growth. But again, I think that's all good news for people in the audio space because if you're making good audio content and you've got all there, there's all these ways for people to get to your audio content other than a traditional radio, which is still a way a lot of people get it. Um, it's just it's there are there's just more it's just more it's it's more for 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 all of us. But I don't think you can uh, you know my view is you can't be successful in this business if you're only in the terrestrial radio business. When was the first time you remember hearing the word podcast? That's a good question. I think it was in the, I don't know. I, I, I know that we were one of the first doing it. That I will tell you. <laughs> Seven, 2008, maybe? Nine? I can't, I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't remember, but I do. You know, and again, before it was called pod, podcasts, people were downloading and listening to radio to uh, to a, to a show when they wanted to listen to it, which I would argue is really the those were really the first podcasts. So going back to what you said before, I asked that you you said something about it being a, a great time for talent to come up in the industry, and in in certain ways, I see that. You know, I can build my brand making a podcast from my spare bedroom. But at the same time, getting jobs that that pay money and uh, are you can pay your bills with are being are going away. They're being automated. Uh, overnights don't exist to the same degree that they used to. Do you think that it's harder or easier for someone who wants to go into radio or audio to get into the business now compared to what it was in the past? I think it's probably a little bit harder is, is, is my guess. Like it is, I th I feel like with almost everything else. Um, I think there is because of the economics of the three biggest radio broadcasters, right? Uh, 
iHeart, Cumulus, um, you know, kind of not quite yet, with, or I'll leave Entercom off for right now. Um, but, you know, there's they're, they're no, no breaking news here. They're, you know, two of those three companies are, are either have just emerged from bankruptcy or in bankruptcy. And so that, that puts a squeeze on, if you're, you're talking about the, the, you know, the biggest holders of radio stations in, in kind of some economic peril. And it's not because of the cash flow. It's because of the underlying debt that was taken on. Radio is still a healthy business. It's just that the large companies, you know, took on a little bit too much debt. And, and so, you know, let's put a squeeze on it, which is put a squeeze on hiring and put a squeeze on wages. So it is it is tougher. It is definitely tougher. And maybe this isn't the best question for someone like you who runs any part of partially runs an enormous brand. Do you think it's easier for local markets, smaller companies to survive now maybe than it was before uh, with some of those technological advances? Yeah, you know, I, we speak to, to smaller local uh, uh, broadcasters all the time. And um, I will tell you that they're, that, 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 you know, they're, they're making it go. They're, they're, they're making it go. They're entrepreneurial. They're, they're embedded in their local communities. They're, they're finding all kinds of ways to be active. Um, you know, we, we have a, an affiliate advisory board and uh, made up of, of, uh, of about 15 different, different size, you know, representatives of different size radio groups. And I'll tell you a lot of, a lot of good stuff being done out there. Um, that is, that is taking advantage of, of, of radios, uh, local roots and involvement in community. So they're, they're, I, I feel that the, the, you know, the, the smaller places are, are they, they seem to be in a pretty healthy place. So one of the questions that I ask everybody who comes on the air is what is your broadcast horror story where everything goes wrong and you can laugh at it now, but it drove you nuts at the time. And since you haven't ever been on the air, that's not entirely applicable. But do you remember a specific sales situation without giving any names or, you know, throwing anybody under the bus where everything went wrong <laughs> in a way that is funny to look back on and chuckle at now? Oh my! Um, I'm trying to, you know, we haven't had too many. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's all it's been pretty. It's been pretty. It's been a pretty good ride, Logan. <laughs> There's there have definitely been some unhappy moments along the way. I'm trying to think. Um, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I didn't know you'd be asking this question. I would have given it some more thought, <laughs> but I'm sure somewhere, someplace. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Things have not always gone as as expected. Put it that way. But I'm, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, I do know that I've 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 watched some things go on the air. Like Mike and Mike would bet every year on the NCAA uh, NCAA um, uh, basketball tournament, and the loser had to do something outrageous. And, um, and one year it was, uh, it was Mike Greenberg. If he lost, he had to milk a cow. And, uh, I will say that, uh, it, we had the cow in the studio and, um, 
evidently they had not given the cow sufficient time outside before they brought it in the studio. So just as Mike is going to milk the cow, there's a little bathroom break going on <laughs> so, in, in the studio. Somehow we got through it okay. By the way, it made for great radio. How hands-on are you with the talent uh, at ESPN? Um, by what do you mean by what do you mean by hands-on? What 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 do you mean? Are you in Are you in or around the studio on a day-to-day basis, kind of listening out and giving suggestions, or do you kind of just let the talent uh, be talent and do what they're good at? Well, here's here's what I do. I I, I borrowed this from. Uh, uh, our old Cap Cities leader, uh, Tom Murphy, you know, we, we tend to, my, my, my thing has always been to hire the smartest people you can and get out of the way. Um, I, I let the, you know, people like Marsha Keegan and Justin Craig and Adam Delavitt and Ryan T. Hurley and, you know, and different folks that are, that are involved in producing and production, let them, let them go once in a while. You know, I'll certainly I, 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 I do I do weigh in, but I let our I, I let our folks do do what they need to do. I do stay in touch with all our talent. I think um, I think it's I think one of the hardest jobs is, is, is doing a three or four hour radio show and, um, you know, let them know when they're they're knocking it out of the park. And also we let them know when, hey, you know, this is we, we need this to we need this to, to get better. But through the through the right people, um, I'm, a, I'm I am a. I'm a delegator um, because I believe you've got to empower your people, not one person. Certainly, I'm certainly not the smartest person in the room, and um, you know we're, we've got a lot of stuff going on, so I rely on a lot of a lot of smart people. But I do I do think it's important to stay in touch with the with the talent, and I also I also enjoy that part of the job. Being someone who's been so important in the growth of ESPN podcasts, what are your favorite non ESPN podcasts? to listen to do you or do you even listen to podcasts oh i definitely listen to podcasts um um i'm a big uh big listener of uh malcolm gladwell's revisionist history i actually think gladwell has a uh, has a great has a great radio voice um uh i just uh, started listening to this guy novak who does these business leader interviews that i find pretty good um, uh, I do, I do, uh, I do, I do tend to listen to, uh, big cat and, uh, <laughs> and his sidekick, um, from time to time for a little, little levity. So I, I love, I, I love podcasting. I think it's, you know, I, I think podcasting as, as big as, you know, started with AM, FM was big, satellite was big. Streaming was big. Podcasting is going, and when it's all said and done, podcasting will be every bit as big in terms of spoken word. Give us a Paul Harvey story. You said you worked with him back when you were at ABC. He's one of the most iconic broadcasters of all time. What was it like working with him? And I know we don't have much time, so uh, I want to give you, I'll just shut up and let you uh, tell your story. Uh, That was the highlight. That was the best. I would go to Chicago, and um, our sales office was uh, was down the hall from Paul Harvey. This was when I was running the ABC radio networks, and I would always go in and 
and I would I would sit in with Paul when he would do his noonday broadcast, and he I'd go down to the office. He'd be in he'd be in there on a uh, on an old typewriter, with like you know triple spaced yellow lined paper doing writing out his broadcast, and I'd walk in. He'd pull it out of the typewriter. He goes, "Trog, come on, let's go down the hall." We'd go down the hall into the studio he had with this big microphone, and it was just Paul Harvey, and it was me on the other side of the microphone, and then it was the it was the uh, the engineer behind the glass, and uh, and the mic would go on, and he would do his thing, and it was it was it was incredible. His his ability to connect with people was unlike anything I ever saw, and I remember bringing to him. You know, we would we would have for every ten advertisers that wanted to be on, he would only take one because he had to absolutely believe in the product. And when he believed in the product, he really sold it. And I, I, I think to this day, nobody has gotten the ad rates that that Paul Harvey commanded. I mean, businesses kind of built their business around Paul Harvey, Bose, that whole wave radio thing. I mean, I could go on and on about it. But anyway, one day I come to him with a. Uh, a, pot- a potential uh, financial advertiser, right? They wanted to tell people, hey, come with us, you know, we'll invest, you know, put, invest your, your money and let it grow and blah, blah, blah. And Paul said, absolutely not. And I said, well, well why not? This is a good thing. He goes, he goes, I never want to tell my friends where to put their money. I could never live with myself if they, if they lost money because of advice or something I had told them. And, and he goes, you have to remember he goes, each one of these people I'm talking to, these are these are my friends. And um and it was very powerful. He he was he he I mean I, I think you, you go back and and look at some of the things that have been written about Paul Harvey. There's no question that over a course of five decades he goes down as one of the top five most influential broadcasters of all time. And it's because of that that reverence he had for each and every listener. Um he respected them. Uh, and, and, and he always wanted to maintain that respect and, and, and that relationship. And I think because of it, that's why he was as successful as he was, you know, every president, while he was doing his thing at one time during their administration, called him into the Oval Office to get his view from, uh, from the heartland. As a person in sales who put together a campaign and probably put together the commercials and the copy, and then to take it to the talent and them say no, how do you then go back to that client and, and and maintain your credibility as a salesperson? Like, I understand what Paul's doing, but that would be really challenging on the sales side. You know, it just made him want him more. <laughs> what do you mean, no? <laughs> um Look, I think people respected, you know, people respected that. If you're doing an individual, if you're doing your own, if you're doing an endorsement, I think you have to, you, 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 I think it, when a talent is saying, hey, look, I really, this is how I feel about my relationship with the audience. I've got certain parameters here. I think you have to respect that because that's what gives that announcer their credibility. And I think that's, that's I think most, most advertisers understand that. Do you go into the sales pitch saying Paul has final final say on whether this happens or doesn't happen? And oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. They they all they all they all knew. Yes, they all always knew that. Because again, 
I would say like of every 10 we brought to Paul, he'd only take one or two. Interesting. Well, I guess we'll wrap up. You're a busy guy, and we need to let you go do your ESPN Senior Vice President thing. So, Trog, Keller, thank you so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks, Logan. Appreciate, uh, appreciate the interest and the time. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show and just thank them for coming on and let them know that you appreciate them sharing their stories on this podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.